Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Professor at Australian Catholic University, Shona Halson. Thanks for tuning in to episode 244 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode features a part two with Shona Halson after she featured in episode 82 a couple of years ago. So some really interesting thoughts with um, to discuss with, with Shona. Given her expertise in the recovery and sleep world, obviously that is the way we go in this episode. So we start off with chatting around some of the devices that we're able to track sleep with, some that are more um, reliable than others. So we go into a lot of detail around that. We go into some detail around periodizing recovery strategies, um, what the research says in terms of those recovery strategies that we could potentially use, how people are using them in the field, um, then some jet lag strategies as well at the end, jet lag prevention strategies at the end. So a really interesting chat with Shona, really enjoy speaking to her. And I remember uh, a couple of years ago in 82, feeling exactly the same, coming off the back of that, thinking that episode was absolutely awesome. So hopefully, I know you will feel that this is exactly the same. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So iMeasureU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about iMeasureU, head over to the website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Shona Halson. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, or this morning for me, I am welcoming Shona Halson to the podcast. So welcome to a part two, Shona. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for the invitation to be back again. Absolute pleasure. So it's good to get an update. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I spoke to you. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of an update on maybe how things have changed for you, if they have ACU, and then going back over your background, education, um, and, and the kind of backstory from you. Yeah, sure. So I'm currently um, an associate professor in the School of Behavioural and Health Sciences at Australian Catholic University. Uh, I finished up at the AAS middle of last year and I was at the Institute of Sport in Canberra for almost 16 years. Um, my role there was really around research, servicing, um, education for athletes. Um, my role with Australian Catholic University is, is pretty similar. I have a, a full-time research load. I do some teaching in our master's of high-performance sport, and I still do some work with uh, a number of professional teams and athletes as well. So my area really is around recovery, so optimising recovery for athletes, sleep, and some work in, in training monitoring as well. 
Excellent. So let's dive straight in. The, the first thing that I wanted to chat about was the sleep side of things. I know we went into quite a lot of detail on that. I can't off the top of my head think of what uh, episode number it was, but I'll definitely link to that so people can uh, people can have a look at and, and have a listen to that pre- from previous. But in terms of sleep, let's have a little chat about the monitoring tools that are available. Everyone loves to know about the tools that are available to us. So what what are the um, the kind of overarching tools that are available to us when it comes to monitoring sleep? Yeah, great question. And I recently um, published an article on this in Sports Medicine. So this is very much at the forefront of my brain at the moment. Um, So essentially, there's a number of different means that you can use to monitor sleep, some with more validity and reliability than others. Um, But we start off with the gold standard of polysomnography. So that's where you have, you know, electrodes placed on the scalp, you have uh, measurements of muscle activity, breathing rate, etc. And that's really considered the gold standard. And the thing that you would do um, if you suspected an athlete had um, like sleep apnea or a, a medical sleep related disorder, we would typically use polysomnography or research project. So it is one of those things that is uh, really the only way that we have to accurately stage sleep. So when we talk about REM and non-REM sleep, the only really accurate way we have of determining determining that is is through polysomnography. Now, a lot of devices will tell you they can measure that um, and what they're really doing is taking a bit of an estimation using some algorithms that we don't really know a whole lot about. So the thing that you trust, I trust the most is polysomnography. It is rare though, it's expensive, it's time consuming and you really need um, an expert in terms of setting up and scoring the sleep. The next level of monitoring would be the things that we typically would use um, in, uh, that I would use in research as well as in practice with athletes, and that is activity monitoring. So it's essentially the wrist, a wrist-worn device with an accelerometer in it that picks up movement. So the benefits of these types of devices are that um, you can wear them for long periods of time. So you know you could have an athlete wearing one for a month. You can look at when they're travelling. You can look at post games. You can look at the night before the team picked. You can look at lots of different things over time. Um, We use the Philips watches and we use those because we're really comfortable in terms of um, their their, um, validity. This can be compared to polysomnography so we know where the positives and the negatives are with those devices. They're a little bit more expensive than your consumer devices that you can get Um, but and they do require some expertise um, from someone to be able to analyse the data that you get so it's not like a a little watch that you can put on and it'll show you something on an app um, in terms of your sleep so it's a little bit more complex in terms of use but I'm comfortable obviously with their validity and um, how how they work when you're actually working with an elite athlete. The next level down would be some of the more consumer technologies. So things like um, Fitbit, um, Whoop, those kinds of of devices. Uh, So these are ones that anyone can go out and buy. They're really simple to use. They um, can give you plenty of information um, very easily. Uh, what we don't know about most of these devices, though, is the algorithm that they use to pick up sleep and wake. So the cutoff point for when a certain amount of movement is considered wake or sleep. Uh, and so, for that, and I understand why companies do that. They don't want to give away their trade secrets. Um, but that essentially then means we need to go and do the validation studies on those to determine whether they actually work or not. Um, the, the the sleep team that I work with Dan and Adelaide have done um, some assessments on, on the Fitbit and there are some issues there in terms of overestimating sleep and, and particulates because they, they don't pick up wake very well. Um, what that actually means is that the poorer sleeper you are, the more wake you have, um, the more errors that you'll have from that device. Um, there's currently, that's published research, there's currently no studies that are published that have looked at the WHOOP watch. Um, I know one group who's done one pro- uh, assessment of it and we've 
we've done one that we're in the process of, of writing up as well. So we're starting to now understand a little bit more about those devices. But there are some benefits of these sort of consumer-based devices. And that really is that it might start a conversation with a practitioner because you've got someone wearing a watch um, and they start to think about their sleep like as part of the education process. But we really need to understand where the errors are and where the, the variation is because I might come in with my research grade sleep watch um, and you've got an athlete who's been wearing one of these devices that will give them very different information. And all of a sudden they think, oh, well, maybe I'm, uh, I'm a poorer sleeper, I'm a better sleeper than I originally thought. So I think we have to be careful about the uses of some of these consumer devices just because of their you know, their lack of validity. And then there's also the fact that sometimes athletes might just get a little bit um, caught up or obsessed or think a little bit too much about their numbers when you can see them every day on a watch. Um, so there's pros and cons around some of those consumer devices. Um, the next thing down, so we'd, we'd call those consumer devices wearables. The next thing down would be things like nearables. So they're the things that you might put on your bed or near your bed, um, things like smartphone applications, um, the Beddit device, which goes on the um, on the mattress. Um, there's been some research on the Beddit device, um, which wasn't overly positive, unfortunately. Um, for that device, um, and but there's been not much research whatsoever on smartphone applications and other nearable devices. So there, they would probably come down the lower um, lower point of of a list of of things to try. Um, and then you have diaries and questionnaires, and there's more and more. Um, sleep-related questionnaires that are specific for athletes. So I was involved with Matt Driller and Cherry Ma developing uh, a questionnaire for athletes, specifically for athletes, asking athletes specific questions, because a lot of the questionnaires are typically for insomnia. And like we don't, you know, insomnia is not what we're looking at with athletes. Typically, we're looking at bad behaviour. Um, not that you don't have insomnia in athletes at all, but typically what we see is is, is some poor behaviours. So really there's the full, that's kind of the spectrum of things that you can use to assess sleep from full from the gold standard um, down through to questionnaires, visual analogue scales and, and daily um, subjective measures. Excellent. So that Philips that Philips device that you mentioned, and you said that it would take, it would need an expert to actually decipher that because of the, the amount of data that you get out of it. Is that an expert as in you've been an expert or is that a sports scientist at a football, cl- a football club, rugby club who will be able to deal with that kind of data? Yeah, I think there's sort of two aspects to that. I think anyone can be trained to export the data and examine it and assess it and write a report. I think the the skill and the experience that's needed beyond that is what's normal what's not normal, and then what does someone actually do about it? Because most of the sleep monitoring tools that we have available to us don't give any information on what's what's in a good range, but then, okay, if you're in a bad range of sleep, then what do you actually do? How do you correct that? What are the strategies that you might use? So I think um, there is there is a level of experience and skill kind of needed to, um, to interpret the data in a way that's going to actually be meaningful for the athlete. Uh-huh. Another question I had off the back of that also was the, the amount of feedback or the type of feedback that you may give an athlete based on whichever device you use, I guess. Because as you mentioned, it's very easy. And this is why Fitbits and things, I'm guessing, have been so popular is because you can get obsessed with the numbers. It gives yep. you a number and it's eight, which is better than yesterday because yesterday was 7.5. And it's easy to get caught up in that. So in terms of recommendations for how much and what feedback to give athletes, what recommendations do you have? Mm, that is a really good question. And I'm going to give the typical scientist answer of <laughs> it depends. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you how we how, how I would typically go about some sleep monitoring with an athlete. What I would normally do would be to come in for a two-week block with one of our Philips watches and um, assess their sleep for that two weeks, generate a report, sit down with them with some one-on-one um time and explain through the report, talk to them about the things that they can improve, then leave them alone for a period of time and then um, check back in with them, see how it's, see how they're going and maybe do a little bit of follow-up monitoring. So the advantage of that is that um, 
they the, the athlete doesn't see something every day and um, maybe get a bit obsessed with it and think, oh, you know, oh, okay, I slept 10 minutes extra. Is that, you know, that's good when, you know, that's just within the, you know, normal day-to-day variability. So um, that's the way I like to work. I think it takes away some of that pressure. Um, however, there are some individuals that love the numbers and can handle the numbers um, and, then, and can handle that every day. And I do think it depends, the it depends, depends on the type of athlete that you're dealing with. I think if you're dealing with someone who's got a lot of stress and anxiety about their sleep, having too many numbers may not be the best thing for them. It may just cause them to stress more. And obviously, stress, anxiety, doesn't go well with sleep. So we want to sort of keep those things a bit separate. So I think if you've got an athlete that likes a lot of numbers and is quite disciplined with wearing different devices, likes the numbers, but is not going to obsess and go and lose their minds over, you know, small changes or I didn't get any deep sleep um, and you can anchor them to, okay, this is what is normal with this device. Look, it's estimating you're getting more sleep and it doesn't measure how quickly you fall asleep very accurately. So just take it with, you know, for what it is and look for longitudinal large changes over time, um, you know, we're, we're all good. So I do think it does depend a little bit on the type of athlete you're dealing with and most of them will be able to tell you, it's like, oh, no, I don't – or they might wear it for a period of time and they're like, oh, no, I didn't like it. I didn't like having – because what happens when you wake up in the morning and some of these devices now gives you a recovery score or a readiness score. So if that happens to you on the day of the game and you wake up in the morning with a terrible readiness score or recovery score, there's nothing you can do about it. It's probably not that good for your brain. Um, And thirdly, who knows if it's even giving you accurate information. So I think there's a time and a place for numbers for certain athletes. Mm -hmm. That can be dangerous. I know how I'd react yes. if, that, if that popped in my phone saying I was in a te- in terrible condition. Oh, exactly. I mean, imagine the night of Olympic final, the, the morning of an Olympic final or a World Cup final or something and, and you've got a watch giving you these kinds of numbers. And I know a lot of athletes, when we're doing sleep monitoring, will not like to wear it the night before a game because some people do – I've just done some monitoring with a professional team and, and some of the, the players said, oh, it took a little while to get used to the first couple of nights because they do – if they're not used to wearing a watch or you're not used to wearing a watch to bed, you can st- and then you all of a sudden you start thinking about your sleep you go, oh, or maybe I'm not sleeping as well as I thought I was or or people are watching me, so I need to make sure I'm sleeping properly. So I think you, it's not, you know, sleep's getting really popular and measuring it's getting really popular, but I think there's some there's some quirks that you need to kind of think around before everyone starts throwing a, a consumer monitor on, on all of the players. So one thing that from, from my own experience, and we, we came across it quite a lot, and, and this was when guys were, we were training in the morning, and they'd have lunch and they'd, they'd maybe go in the gym and they'd go home and, and have a nap in the afternoon. And then lads would struggle to get to sleep in the uh, normal bedtime because of the nap, I'm guessing because of the nap in the afternoon. What is, is, is there any recommendations? I'm sure that's probably a, a very common thing out there. Um, any recommendations on the back of that kind of scenario? Yeah, and that is a really common thing to hear, um, and that can get you into a bit of a bad habit. So you you sleep during the day, so you don't sleep as well at night. So the next day you're tired. Um, so then you need a nap, and it just gets into this vicious cycle. Um, so what we do know about napping is any nap, generally speaking, will interfere with the quality. Um, of that nighttime sleep and can interfere with exactly what you said, your ability to fall asleep. Now, most people will be napping because they're sleep deprived. So you want them to um, to sleep because the only way to get away from sleep dep- deprivation is to sleep. There's no other cure for it. Um, so it's this really uh, sort of tough balance between, yes, you need to nap because you're sleep deprived and we want you to do well in your afternoon training session, but we don't want it to interfere with nighttime sleep. And so really the amount of napping that you need is really related to the level of sleep deprivation that you have first and foremost. So for some people who are really sleep deprived, they may need a longer nap than than others that aren't. Um, the general rules though, um, here I am actually answering your question, um, the general rules are 
not to nap too late in the afternoon. And a lot of athletes can't anyway because they they have an afternoon training session um, and, and don't nap for too long. So that's really, really general. But what we say to people is to do exactly um, what you've said and that's to think about and monitor over time how long it takes you to fall asleep. So I used to work with some swimmers who would actually have um, – because swimmers get up really early um, – so they'd have mm. the early morning training session and they'd actually nap before lunch. And it was actually oh, wow. quite good because then they'd build up a lot of sleep pressure before they would um, have to go to bed. So they didn't have much of an effect of that nap on nighttime sleep. So I would say before three o'clock in the afternoon and um, look, time frames are really messy. Um, you know, some people say no longer than 20 minutes. Some people say no longer than 45 minutes. I think you have to relate that to how sleep deprived you are. Um, but naps over an hour is probably a bit of a sign that that you're, you're pretty deprived. So early in the day and just enough so that it doesn't interfere with your nighttime sleep. And that's the kind of thing that you, you need to sort of think about and practice and 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 um, understand for yourself individually what is going to impair with your nighttime sleep. Mm-hmm. So in terms of that, altering that structure of, of napping, how do we how do we change that behaviour? What's the, I mean, I know we talked about the, the amount of feedback and how we deliver feedback to athletes in terms of their their sleep regimes but how do we go about changing that on a to, to make it a little bit more positive yeah in terms of um sleep feedback and sleep education information i tend to take the approach of um relating everything to performance um and so talking about um you know the nighttime sleep and the things that we know that happen from a physiological hormonal um, psychological brain restoration perspective um so that we can really reinforce that nighttime sleep um and so then saying look napping is important but we need to make sure that it is not um, taking the place of of nighttime sleep because I've seen that too with um, a football team once where they had a pre-programmed nap during the day. So a lot of the players were like, oh, I can go to bed whenever I want at night. Um, I just got to get through the morning training session because then I get time to nap during the day. So it's not compensating for sleep. It's sort of topping up. It's giving you um, that little bit of extra sleep. So I think for me, working with athletes around changing behaviours, which is the area that I'm probably most interested now in is because like sleep's not that hard to do for most people. It's pretty enjoyable. Um, what what just happens is people don't prioritise it or they do silly behaviours or they're on Fortnite, Netflix, Instagram, whatever it is. And so I think it's around like how do we get to change that behaviour? How And it can be really hard. And if it's hard – for something like sleep, um, which shouldn't be hard, then, you know, it's it's a bit of a – we're in a bit of a tricky place and it's because people usually get into ingrained habits of they've slept that way their whole life, they think it's normal. Um, so you've got a lifetime of habits um, you often to change um, but then also you're dealing with a modern society which has, you know, the, the phone use and the computer use and the video games. So behaviour change for me is, is probably the most important thing. Anyone can come in and monitor sleep. Anyone can give feedback. But how do you convince an athlete that they need to prioritise sleep? And sometimes other examples of the best athletes in the world and what they do because there is a pretty strong trend for the best athletes in the world to take care of themselves, um, the ones that have um, very long successful careers tend to look after themselves a little bit better than than others so it's athletes examples it's making sleep a competition most athletes are competitive surprise surprise so if you can make a competition between the team about getting the most sleep you might have some luck there um, so it's really around just trying to identify things within what what does the individual want do they want a long career do they want to earn lots of money do they want to be successful at the next olympics or the next world cup what do they want um, and try to target your message around performance to the to the specifics of, of the individual mm-hmm. i'd like to come back to the whole Fortnite, uh xbox <laughs> playstation phones type of thing but i just want to mention one thing in terms of evening evening matches so when mm. uh, i'm guessing it's like a lot of clubs all over the world when we when we used to have evening matches the manager used to like the lads to have a, an afternoon 
period of time where they maybe traveled that if especially if it was well only mm-hmm. if it was an away game we'd travel in the morning we'd do our prep lunchtime ish and the lads would disappear for four or five hours and they would either probably play on Fortnite um <laughs> or, or some would have a sleep so in terms of positioning that in the day when there's an, an evening game at say half past seven eight o'clock what would you say would be the the kind of ideal scenario if and, and, and it, indeed if that is actually the ideal scenario to have a sleep in that situation and if, yeah. if so kind of where where to position it how i mean i know it's very general but how long the guy should have and all that kind of stuff yeah that's a really good question i find there's some athletes that do like to sleep or players that like to sleep the night before uh, the day of a game and others that don't need to or can't like they're either you know a bit anxious or um and their their ability to sleep day um, on the day of the game is not there so for me it's really around i mean sometimes the schedules as you know are so tight that you've only got a small window you know by the time you have to get ready get on the bus travel to the venue whatever you you your time to actually um, rest is limited. My suggestion would be again as early in the day as possible, um, and um, sleeping. You know, just as, as much as as much as you need. I like the idea of just not letting, not having an alarm, and just seeing what happens because then you'll probably get the sleep that you need. Um, now, again, knowing that there may be an influence of that sleep during the day on on their nighttime ability to sleep. Um, however, my when I'm talking to athletes and they ask me this question, I usually say a couple of things. I will say, do you feel like sleeping the day of the game helps your performance? If it does, then that's what you should do. Um, a lot of athletes really feel like, especially for a night game, you start seven or eight o'clock at night and they've woken up early that morning, they just feel like to play well they need a sleep. And if they do, that's fantastic. The other thing I say to, to players is that if you don't if you don't need a sleep or you can't sleep, that's also okay as well. Um, if you don't fall asleep, it probably means you just don't need it. Um, and you might not be someone that naps regularly anyway. So, um, But for me, the priority is around the game. So, okay, it might disturb your sleep that night, if you nap during the day, but if you feel like it, you it's what you need to do to play really well, then then I I just say do it. Um, it's kind of the same as caffeine. Um, we obviously we know that caffeine can have residual effects on sleep that night, um, especially if they've taken too much. Um, but if you feel like you need caffeine to play well, you know the priority is performance um, for that game, not sleep the following night. Ideally, though, um, athletes would minimize the damage that they do on their nighttime sleep. So napping just enough that you need um, to perform well and having just the right amount of caffeine so that you're not um, impairing the nighttime sleep. So again, earlier in the day to nap if you can. If you don't need to nap, it's not the end of the world, just means you don't actually need it. Um, But if you do feel like you need to nap, then I would recommend um, napping. So then back to the... 21st century athlete with Fortnite and Xbox and all these kind of things. I know it's such a, I suppose it's such a talked about subject and it, it seems so obvious given like just don't go on your phone or just don't play on Fortnite. But as we know, it's just not as easy as that. So is there any any typical kind of success stories that you've had or any recommendations in terms of dealing with that mm, kind of stuff? Yeah, look, the thing that I like to do is, so I would never say to an athlete, stay off your phone before you go to bed. Now, because one, they it's it's generally speaking not going to happen. So I will say to them, best case scenario is that you're not going to be on your phone, but chances are they're going to do it anyway. Um, so then it's about minimizing the damage. Um, so what I the recommendations that I give, so I'll firstly explain to them the effects of, of the blue light from the devices and how that can interfere with the body clock and melatonin and sleepiness. Um, I'll also talk to them about the stimulating effects of whether it's video gaming or social media and you know, people post, they wait to see what, you know, who's responding, what's happening. Um, so there's the stimulation aspect of, of, the, of the devices as well. So I explain all the negatives. And then I try to give some strategies. So I say, look, okay, overall, the best thing that you can do is not take your phone into your room. 
Or if you do take your phone into to your room, flick it on flight mode and put it next to your bed, your alarm will still go off. Um, the other thing that I try to get them to do is say, if you're going to use your phone, use it in your lounge room, separate the lounge room from the bedroom. So use your, if you're doing any of these things, phone, computer, social media, whatever it is, try to use those in the lounge room, flick your phone off and then go into the, um, or flick your phone off on flight mode and then go into the bedroom. So you're not using your phone in, in bed. So what I try to describe it as is, um, you know, you hop into bed and the body's and the brain's like, well, so what am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be getting excited to play Fortnite and, you know, getting wired up on social media or am I supposed to be sleeping? You kind of confuse the brain a bit when you um, use social media and things like that in the bed. So I try to keep um, the bedroom and the lounge room as separate as possible. Now, that's a really a challenge when you travel. So when you're in a hotel room, and, um, you know, obviously athletes travel all the time, so their bedroom is their lounge room. Um, so I really try to encourage them to just not use these devices in bed. Um, also, putting the um, the flight – sorry, putting the um, – uh, night shift mode on their phones or um, doing something like that, wearing light blocking glasses, which some of them won't, but if you put the night shift on your phone, then at least trying to dampen some of that light out. So I think it's around giving them strategies and little ways that they may be able to do it. I think it's really challenging these days with athletes, especially the way those with numerous um, or, you know, thousands, even millions of uh, Instagram and social media followers. It can be it can be a real challenge because, and I understand for a lot of them, it's around sponsorship, it's around recognition. They've got a short career span to make money. I, I fully understand that. But I think it's about saying, we're not taking your phone away from you. We're not saying you can't use social media, but if you're going to post something, maybe post it in the morning. Um, or Don't post right before you go to bed, post it the following morning. Um, so, and sometimes as well, when you do the sleep monitoring and you give them a report and you show that their time taken to fall asleep is very long, you can say, ah, okay, well, this is probably due to your phone use. Um, or your computer use or something like that. So giving them some objective data, giving them some simple strategies um, and then giving some repetition to that message. So sometimes it won't won't take one time to get through. It might take five or six or seven times of saying, yes, you're taking a long time to fall asleep, but you're still on your phone. Let's see. Let's see if we can sort of minimise some of that. So, But you are 100% right. In today's society, it's a massive challenge. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Shona. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss uh, periodizing recovery. We discuss um, psychological recovery as well as physiological recovery. Um, the use of float tanks, loads of stuff around that. And then some um, some chat around meditation, which, which uh, falls in line with some of the psychological recovery uh, chat as well. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. 
So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. So let's move on to some recovery chat and obviously more and more research coming out on the effects of common uh, recovery modalities in, in professional sport. But I'd just like to get your um, kind of overview of what the research says in terms of these different modalities, kind of like we did with the monitoring tools at the start in terms of sleep. Mm-hmm. And then we can chat into the, the kind of practicalities of how these work and some common practices of what's ha- what's happening in the field. Yeah, so there's, I think, um, obviously sleep being your number one recovery strategy. After that, we've got things like the water immersion, uh, which, are, which is very popular. Um, so within water immersion, you have things like cold water immersion, which is ice baths, contrast water immersion, which hot cold, and then just the hot immersion on its own, which is like your spa bath. Um, we know a lot about cold water immersion in terms of in comparison to the other two. Um, Cold, uh, contrast water therapy we're sort of, is sort of the next one down and then we know less and less about hot water exposure. Having said that, hot water or heat exposure in the recovery period is getting increasingly popular. Um, so we've got a lot of science on cold water immersion and acute performance. Uh, we have less information on all these strategies and longer term performance, so adaptation over time. Um, other popular recovery strategies would be compression, whether that's compression garments or um, the pneumatic compression like your Normatex or your recovery pump devices. Uh, we have a lot more science around compression garments and, and the, con- the clothing version um, of compression. There's very little, uh, there's only a few handful of studies around the um, pneumatic compression, but they are, again, really popular. Um, so they're both two things that I would recommend for athletes. Um, compression garments can be really simple, practical, easy to do, and a lot of athletes really like the, um, the pneumatic compression because it does, definitely feels like it's doing something. It's pretty powerful, and we've got no at, – at present, there's no um, studies that have shown any negative effects of either of those. Um, we obviously have nutrition as a very important recovery strategy, so replacing the carbohydrate, proteins – um, hydration, fluids, all those kinds of things, and I won't, I won't delve into that. Um, I'm sure you've got experts uh, on your podcast who are much, much better at me in that area. Uh, we have other things like massage. That's very popular, and we're getting some more science now around massage, and it is some, one of the things that we definitely do recommend um, for recovery. And then there's all the other, you know, there's a lot of different um, technologies now that are available. So there's things like cryotherapy chambers, um, cryotherapy, uh, different types of saunas, um, different types of muscle stimulation, those types of things we know a lot less about. So the way I kind of think about recovery in general is, is as a pyramid where the base of your pyramid is sleep um, and rest and whether that's psychological rest or just downtime. Then moving up, you've got things like water immersion, then you have compression and massage, and then sort of the top of the pyramid are the things, you know, the the gadgets, the gizmos, the things the gurus try to sell you, which, and not to say that these things may or may not work, we just don't have as much information on them. So if you're an athlete and you're going to spend some time um, on doing a recovery, why not do the things that are at the bottom end of the pyramid where we've got uh, where we've got some good information, we understand um, understand how they work. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things off the back of that, loads of things off the back of that. Um, the heat exposure. So you said that was becoming a little bit, well, a lot more popular. What's the what's the mechanism behind that, and any recommendations off the back of that? Mm, excellent question. Um, I was hoping you were going to answer it because I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, sorry, yeah. hoping you to ask it because I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, so heat may, when heat's used in the recovery period, it can be used as 
a recovery strategy or it can be used as a, a passive stressor. So some people, like if you're spending 40 or 50 minutes in a hot room or a you know a sauna or something like that that's not recovery you're doing it at the recovery in the recovery period um, but it doesn't mean it's recovery um, if you're jumping in a spa or a sauna for a very short period of time 10 to 20 minutes maybe and it's relaxing the, the you know the, the the athlete likes it. They find it's nice for their muscles. It just feels like they're getting a nice, relaxing recovery session. That's more recovery. So when people are using heat in the recovery period, it can be two different things. So it can be for recovery and, and general relaxation, or it can be adding a passive stimulus um, to, the, to the training response. And that's what a lot of people are doing is they're trying to add extra stimulus to their training without doing any extra work in like in the gym or on the track or whatever, because when you sit in a really hot environment, you do have your elevated heart rate and blood pressure and all those kinds of things. So it's a, it's a passive stressor. Um, but a lot of athletes that I work with, so in particular, some of the Polynesian athletes, um, some of the footballers, they don't like cold. They really don't enjoy it. Um, for them, a relaxing recovery strategy is, you know, 20 minutes at a spa bath. And if that's what works for them and they find that that's a good strategy for them, then I'm, I'm more than happy to, to promote that. We're just really careful with the heat, though, if you've got an acute injury. So, you know, within 24, 48 hours, you know, a lot of footballers do have injuries. Um, so we're like, you know, stay away from from heat in in that time frame. But it's almost like it's on a continuum where where heat can be on one end gentle and nice and relaxing, um, and on the other end dehydrating, stressful, um, and adding a hmm. adding more of a stimulus to the training block. So in terms of dividing them two up, so making sure it is a recovery and not a, a stimulus to an extra stimulus to the training, is there a, is there a time frame there that is that divides them two? Yeah, I'm totally guesstimating here, um, but I'd be looking at something around 15 to 20 minutes or less for heat exposure. Um, and of course, it does depend whether you're in water at, you know, 38 degrees or, you know, a 65 degree sauna. Um, I think what you want to do is not to feel as a guide, not to f have it feeling really uncomfortable. So you can, you know, sit in a, in a sauna for a little while and you can start to feel good. And then all of a sudden you feel like, oh, this is just not feeling great. I'm actually feeling uncomfortable. Um, and you can do that with a spa as well. If you sit in a warm spa for long enough, it can feel a bit unpleasant. So um, I think we can, in, unless we're monitoring heart rate and all those kinds of things regularly with, with your athletes, and I would just stick to um, stick to comfort level. Cool. And then another one, um, question off the back of the, the first um, first comments, and massage. So you said more, more research coming out on the benefits of, of massage in terms of recovery. Any recommendations there? Should it be immediate? Should that be, should it be a delay? What's the situation in that, in that area? Mm, yes, yeah, good. So some people traditionally would like, say, if it's immediately after a game or a competition, generally will like a kind of flush type massage. Um, they do feel, can feel really good um, and can help you rest and relax. Um, others will use massage, say, during the week, and it won't be as a recovery strategy. It'll be like as maintenance or injury prevention, or you've got a bit of a niggle, so you're getting that fixed. So I kind of don't really class that as recovery. It's more kind of maintenance work or um, rehabilitation work. If you're looking at um, massage immediately after a game, as I said, a lot of, you know, if it's a contact sport, a lot of people will um, just like, will typically use like a flush type um, type massage. If if you look at some of the research though, so early days, it was all about lactate. Well, we got we to gotta flush the lactate out of the system. We know that that doesn't happen. Um, we know that massage will not clear out your lactate. If you want to clear lactate, go and do an active recovery. I think that's kind of been um, the sort of old news these days, although you still hear people say, I'm just going to flush the lactate out. Um, but what we're starting to see in the research now, and it's really coming out of um, Thomas Best's lab, and he's doing some really interesting work with using 
massage and vibration for muscle repair. So how to actually repair damaged muscle. And I think that's where some of the um, some of the work's going to go. So he really started out in animal model and now he's working in the, he has some people also working in a human model. And I think um, with some of the work that he's doing, we're going to get a better understanding of how and when to do massage. At the moment, I think a lot of it's left up to what the athlete likes and, you know, the experience of the therapist. I mean, I've worked with some unbelievably um, qualified and experienced therapists who, who kind of just know what to do. Um, but I think now over time, we'll hopefully add a little bit more science to, to that recipe as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. One thing that I really want, well, personally, I'm personally interested, interested in that. This comes back to a lot of the chat that we had at the start with regards to sleep, and that's the psychological recovery <laughs> and yep. how people are going about trying to facilitate that, whether it be float tanks and that kind of thing. What is... Are you seeing more of that in the field where people are trying to facilitate these kind of environments for psychological recovery? And if so, is there any good practice that you could potentially share? Mm, Yeah, that is a great question because I I really feel that's an area that we haven't done well. Um, I do have a PhD student and I'll shout out to her, Susie Russell, who's doing some really interesting work around mental fatigue and and mental recovery. Um, But I think some of the things that you've mentioned, like I think flotation flotation tanks are are great. Um, They, yes, it's sensory deprivation. And once you get used to it, a lot of people will sleep in there. But one of the things I think it's great about a float tank is you can't take your phone in there. Um, So you've got actually an hour, 45 minutes to an hour of minimal stimulation, mental stimulation. So most people tend to relax pretty well and sleep because um, even when you see athletes on using the Normatec devices or the recovery pump boots, they're still on their phones. They'll even have a phone in the, um, sometimes in an ice bath, they'll try and take it in. Um, but with the float tank, um, no phones. Um, the other thing that I think is the future is um, the integration of psychological and physical recovery. So looking at what physical strategies um, you're using for recovery and how you can add and incorporate mental recovery and things like um, whether it's meditation, whether it's progressive muscle relaxation, um, whatever it may be that um, the athlete finds um, relaxing. So um, I always find it a bit of a challenge talking to athletes about, you know, meditation or those kinds of things. But then LeBron James put a story on um, his Instagram about how he uses the Calm app. Now, whether or not he actually does or not, but um, it's definitely, I took a, I took a screenshot. I'm like, I'm using that. Um, but when you start to see that there are some athletes who are really incorporating, um, some call it mindfulness, whatever it may be, into their practice, then I think it's going to become more common. And we do understand now more than ever the mind-body connection. And we are so, we have such constant stimulation and bombardment of information that you can understand athletes just needing some time away. And I always encourage athletes to find the thing that works for them. So, you know, I'm not super excited about meditation just for me it doesn't work but I might do something like progressive muscle relaxation um, so finding something that um, that can help you relax and and learning how to do these things um, and incorporating them into your everyday practice but also saying well I now I know how to meditate I when I'm really stressed I can do that before I'm, when I'm trying to fall asleep so you can use it from just a downtime perspective during the day but also you can it can potentially carry on to their ability to fall asleep but I think as as you said we've got all these all this social media information we've got um, you know with athletes these days and sponsorship and team selection and you know there is an infinite number of stresses that an athlete can be experiencing at any one time and their ability to manage that and to find some time away um, I think is super important and important for everyone you know not just athletes um, you know important for for everyone to find that thing that helps them um, have some downtime. So in terms of the mindfulness on the the impact on athletes is there any science been done behind that no i haven't seen any okay. and i should put the caveat around that that um i haven't i haven't looked 
yep. overly recently, um, but um, to my knowledge, there isn't. But I know that like Headspace in particular is getting is um, getting quite popular um, with athletes, and there is a sleep component to that as well. So I know some athletes that that use that and like it. Some like the Calm um, app. Um, I um, have used before, and some athletes find the Deep Sleep app quite relaxing as well. So there's a few out there that um, people generally like. Um, not a lot of science. There's a bit of science around um, biofeedback, um, meditation, those kinds of things, and general sleep, but not nothing that I've really seen in an elite athlete population, although it may be there. So what's the Deep Sleep app, Shona? Yeah, it's just an app that is essentially, it's like a type of meditation. It just has relaxing music and a... Okay. Um, and a guy with an absolutely wicked Scottish accent. Um, <laughs> and as soon as I hear his accent, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I know what this means. It's time to sleep. Um, so there are – and it, it, that's the sort of thing, like, you know, sleep is a really conditioned response. And so if you can start to build up these routines and habits that you do all the time, then the body just knows, okay, this is this is what I'm in for. I'm at, it's sleep time. So all these – modalities that are available to, to practitioners and obviously normal people as well. In terms of the, the responses we get from each of them, I know this is a huge topic in itself, but when to use them and how we can potentially change and periodize our recovery modalities uh, mm. in the build-up to competition or through pre-season periods, what's the, what's the research say around that area? Mm. Yeah, probably the most topical area in recovery at the moment is over-recovery and dampening adaptation. So, you know, we have one side of the story. Yes, you can do more work and more training because you're less sore and you're less tired. And then on the other side, you have, well, hang on, don't we have, won't we want inflammation and damage and soreness as part of the training process. So like we periodize nutrition and we periodize our training, now we should be really thinking about how we periodize our recovery. So the two examples that I tend to give, because there's, again, no black and white, um, because every sport has its intricacies and differences. But if I was to take two extremes, so um, something like um, uh, swimming, um, where, you know, they, they don't have a lot of, well, they have almost no impact, um, very few eccentrics except when they're in the gym. Um, you can push them pretty hard before they get into a fatigue hole or, or get, um, you know, get overly sore. So for those particular athletes, when they're just doing base kilometres, you might not want to give them any, any recovery. Um, if your goal is long-term, and that's what I think about, short versus long-term goals. So if your goal is that you want to swim fast at 2020 Tokyo Games um, and then, you know, you might look at these periods where there's um, lots of just base training of not including a whole lot of recovery, your recovery really comes in around competition and around preparation for high-intensity quality sessions that the coach wants you to be really sharp for. Then on the other side of the story, you've got, say, um, a rugby um, team, um, say rugby league team in Australia, they're playing every week, they have considerable travel, they're getting beaten up, they've got a lot of muscle damage, they're getting tackled. And what you, what their goal from week to week is short term. You want to be as good as you can um, from a week to week perspective. So people may play around with taking some recovery out in the preseason, but typically, you know, in Australia anyway, it's hot. Um, you, they're doing high loads. You want to protect them from injury because they're a sport that's injury prone. So periodizing recovery in a sport like in team sports where there's a lot of contact may not be the smartest thing you can do. And for them, it's almost like you want to throw every recovery strategy at these guys you can because they need to be as good as they can week to week. Whereas if you're working with other sports like swimming or track cycling or something where you've got big base periods and your goals are longer term, you may be able to take some of those um, recovery strategies out in the base um, training phase. Oh, and the other thing that I will say is um, your question around research. So there's been a few studies done um, looking at this adaptation idea using like four to five or four to six weeks of ice baths or not ice baths. So typically that's the uh, that's the only thing that's been looked at. Um, and in generally speaking, um, if, you, if I was to be very, very general here, the studies that have shown that there may be a negative influence of cold water on performance, it's when the cold water immersion is placed immediately after a resistance or weight training session. 
Um, we've done studies in cycling. Cold water immersion was beneficial for those over that four-week block. Um, but when it's been around weight training is when we've seen the studies have shown that there may be some dampening of adaptation. So if I'm going to be conservative and I'm thinking, okay, we don't really know what's going on with this whole adaptation question because almost no study, oh, there's no studies that have used elite athletes to date. So we don't really know what happens in the elite world. Um, if I was going to be really conservative with the team I was working with, I would say if I'm going to take out ice baths because I'm worried about adaptation, so I'm worried about longer term goals, I'd take it out after resistance training. Is there anything out there? I know you've mentioned the pyramid with with sleep um, as, the, as the kind of the base. Is there anything that is out there with regards to things higher up the chain affecting the things that are at the bottom of the pyramid? Hmm. <laughs> yes. Oh, good question. <laughs> um, no, no scientific. This is why you have a podcast. Right? <laughs> um, not much scientific evidence, but what I hear anecdotally. So things like um, massage or compression. So things that might take away some of the pain response. So you know, that's the thing some of us forget is that you know athletes that like they often get around tired. Yes, but some of them are sore a lot all the time, whether it's injury or muscle damage or what it may what it may be. So things that can take away some of that soreness can definitely have an influence on sleep. Um, we know that potentially, so I didn't say nutrition in that pyramid, but obviously nutrition is very close to the base of the pyramid. I prefer sleep, but I'm sure dietitians prefer <laughs> nutrition. Um, nutrition, we, you know, we've been doing some work over the last few years looking at how nutrition can influence sleep. And at the moment, things like a glass of milk um, has potential to influence sleep. Um, so what we, uh, what we are looking at is things that can, I think, some of these things higher up the chain, actually influencing sleep as our primary uh, recovery strategy. Excellent. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, <clears throat> but I know we're, we're kind of running out of time and the hour that I promised, but I want to touch on the, the travel aspect of things and mm -hmm. uh, especially at the elite level, a um, couple of hundred miles when we did on a bus, it would on a plane and, 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 and things like that. But in terms of travel hygiene, is there any recommendations from your side of things to, to minimize the negative effects of, of prolonged travel, whether that be on a bus, whether that be, um, well, typically on a plane, I guess, travel yeah. time zones and things. Yeah. So the first thing I would do before I left would be to make sure that I wasn't excessively fatigued. People think, oh, I'm going to skip a night or I'll only sleep a bit, then I'll sleep on the plane. We know that doesn't really happen. If you get on a plane really tired, you'll get off the plane extra tired because any sleep quality on a plane is generally quite poor. So I'd try and get on as fresh as I could. I would try then um, to sleep. There's, there's two schools of thoughts. There's sleep on the times at the destination of your time zone, which is probably a pretty good thing if you're trying to adjust to the new time zone. But if you're only in the new time zone for a short period of time, then you probably just want to sleep when you're biologically ready on the plane. So, and that usually is equated to the um, the departure time zone, but trying to sleep on the plane, wearing comp compression, medical grade compression socks would be one of my number one things to do. So making sure that you're minimising the risk of DVT and you're not getting off the plane with gigantic swollen feet and ankles, um, staying appropriately hydrated and, you know, eating appropriately on the plane um, is also important. Then when you land, um, making, if you can push through to um, sleep at the destina destination um, sleep time. So, you know, the problem with flying Australia to Europe is that we get there at six o'clock in the morning and then you got to try and stay awake all day and it's always tough. Um, but if you can try and push through and sleep, you know, you might go to bed a little bit early, but try to try to push through. That's a good idea. And then looking at um, getting light exposure at the right time. So that may, depending on how many time zones you've crossed and whether you're going east or west, um, it may be light in the morning or light in the afternoon, but getting some light exposure is really the most effective way of getting into that new time zone. And, and you know, use caffeine as, as needed. So, you know, if it helps you push through, um, and I find like personally, and other people say this to me as well, that you kind of go through waves that, that day or the next couple of days. So you might feel really tired and then you'll come good again and then you'll feel tired and you'll 
you'll come good. And I think that, you know, there's times when you might use a little bit of caffeine if you need to push through, just obviously not having it too close to bed. But I would say optimising your light exposure and sleeping at the right times are your two keys. Is there anything, any um, apps or any help that people can get in terms of when to be exposed to light, when not to be exposed to light, when to sleep, when not to sleep? Yeah, I've used um, Jetlag Rooster. Um, it's an, uh, a website um, that where you can type your details in. We do, for athletes, I would typically do a travel schedule, um, which would include um, what to do on the plane. Like I, I would write a, something specific for, for the athletes. Um, but if you don't have someone that can do that for you, then um, Jetlag Rooster is, is a pretty good, um, pretty good tool. Excellent. I know that was pretty brief, that section, but um, I wanted to get in there before I let you go. So anyone that yep. wants to know a little bit more about your work, about the, the work of your team, um, where's the best place to go, Shona? Yeah, I would say Twitter is probably the best yep. one. Um, I'm just Shona.Helson and um, I'm basically there tweeting out any um, relevant papers, both from usually my students um, or myself or the people that we work with, as well as, you know, um, I've got some great colleagues um, down at Central Queensland University in Adelaide. They um, At the Sleep Laboratory down there, they do some excellent work. Um, so always trying to share some of their um, their data around, around sleep as well. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on again. And um... Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and it was great to get an update on uh, a lot of the things we chatted about probably three years ago now, a long time ago. Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe it seems like yesterday. <laughs> I know, I know. So thank you very much, Shona. Really awesome. appreciate it and uh, we'll chat soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 244 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Shona for giving up her time to come on the podcast for a part two. And if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you do check out part one over um, at number 82. Also, big thanks to iMeasureU, Hawking Dynamics, Fatigue Science and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. So as I say every week, if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, please do that now. So every Thursday morning UK time, an expert in the world of strength and conditioning and sports science will get delivered onto your phone. So thanks again for your support and I will chat to you next week. 